we are in the middle of a series right now called The Lion Roars. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, over the last several weeks, we've been really just focusing on the power of Jesus. And today, um, we're going to dial in really to the purpose of Jesus, the, the reason why he came. And let me just kind of, let me just tee it up this way, kind of let you know where we're going with this message. Every four years, our, our country elects a new president of the United States. So uh, sometimes we re-elect a president. Uh, sometimes we um, bring in a brand new person uh, to be president. But uh, we do this every four years. It's a part of our system here of government. And uh, when we elect a new president, there's always a new, a new vision. There's always a new approach. Uh, with a new president, there's a new set of policies. There's a new legislative agenda. Uh, there's a new cabinet. There's a brand new administration. And uh, everything is brand new. In fact, on January 20th, uh, which is Inauguration Day, uh, you may not know this, but the entire White House is flipped in a 12-hour period. So, so during the inauguration festivities and the ceremonies, the swearing in of the president and vice president, uh, there is a, a, a whole operation going on behind the scenes where uh, movers come in and they move out the old president with all of his stuff and his family. And then right after that, they're bringing in uh, the new president, all of his stuff and all of his family stuff as well. And then they completely overhaul the Oval Office. Uh, they spruce that up and uh, redecorate it, make it look, make it look really good. Uh, the president is presented with a brand new limousine, which is kind of interesting. And then the new president gets to pick his new chef. Now, wouldn't that be great if you could do that? That would be amazing if you could just kind of pick your own chef. So this is really American democracy proclaiming that the old is gone and the new has come, that it's a brand new day. Now, when Jesus arrived on the scene, a lot of people just didn't know what to do with him. A lot of people just really struggled what to make of Jesus. Uh, there, were, there was all of this talk that he was the Messiah, and uh, the religious leaders especially struggled with Jesus because he didn't fulfill their expectations for what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And so this caused a lot of, a lot of just tension and conflict and it's building in the gospel of Mark as we're going to really kind of focus on next week and uh, so it just caused a lot of angst between especially the religious leaders and Jesus and so so much of what Jesus did was unconventional and so they they have him and we've kind of looked at this where Jesus and his disciples are spending time with tax collectors and sinners and then Jesus is claiming authority to be able to forgive sins and then not only that, but he's encouraging, you know, the Jewish citizens to pay their taxes to the Roman emperor. And, and, then, and then we see that Jesus is often healing people on the Sabbath. So this caused a lot of tension. But it's, it's Jesus' way of saying, there's a new sheriff in town. The old is gone and the new has come. And so what we see in the coming of Jesus, and especially in the beginning chapters of Mark, is we, we see the dawning of a new day. And 
And that's what I really want to talk about today. So the religious leaders were threatened by all of this. They were threatened by Jesus and his kind of unconventional methods, his teaching especially. So they had their eyes fixed on him, everything that he did. And so they noticed, if you remember last week, they noticed that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Instead, they were feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And so the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they, they went up to Jesus and they asked him, why don't your disciples, you know, fast? I mean, they should be fasting. Why, why aren't they following the law? And we're going to read Jesus' answer because what he says here is absolutely amazing. So we're going to read uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And uh, just out of reverence for the fact that God has spoken to us, that he's revealed his word to us, I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of his word today. So Mark records this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to, said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And then he says this, no one, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. All right, so if you were a faithful Jew, you were required to fast one day out of the year. That was called the Day of Atonement. And so the religious leaders, they didn't fast just one day out of the year. They were so committed, they fasted twice a week. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday. And so, and so um, they encouraged all of their followers to do the same. And so John the Baptist and his disciples were fasting. Of course, the Pharisees and their, their disciples were fasting. But Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. Now, it's important to understand Jesus is not against fasting, I mean, you know this from scripture, you know that Jesus began his ministry fasting for 40 days out in the wilderness. So we see that very clearly. And then you see examples in scripture like Mark chapter 9 where Jesus talks about that there are going to be times when his followers are going to be fasting. And then you see in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus really talks about instructions and in how not to fast and then how to fast. So it's not that Jesus is against fasting. He, he, he was very much for it. It's just on this occasion, Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. Uh, they, they had been feasting. And so they go up and ask him this question, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus says, well, the answer to that is this. It's a new day and I am here. They're not fasting because I am here and it's a brand new day. Let me, in fact, let me show it to you in verses 19 and 20. Notice, notice how Jesus says this. He brings in this metaphor, this illustration to explain why they're not fasting. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That is foreshadowing the crucifixion right there. All right. So that day is coming. And he says, in that day, they will fast. Now, you're like sitting back saying, well, Scott, that didn't really clear anything up for me. I just don't even understand. Why, why is Jesus talking about a wedding? Why is he talking about he's a bridegroom? Well, uh, that's a really good question. I think for us to understand why he's talking about uh, a wedding and that he's the bridegroom, we have to understand first why the Jewish people fasted in the first place, all right? Now, I'm going to give you some background, so just stay with me. I promise we're going somewhere, all right? And there were two reasons why the Jews fasted. They fasted out of, out of, first and foremost, contrition or sadness for their sin. So they would realize their failure in their relationship with God. They would realize that, and then they would mourn over their sin. And, and, so, and so that was a big reason why they fasted, and here's why. Throughout the Old Testament, if you're reading through the Old Testament this year, you've probably noticed this. But, but throughout the Old Testament and, and even into the New, uh, the, the Bible really describes God's relationship with his people as a marriage. So he describes, he's using this imagery to communicate a truth to us that, that God is the lover and we are his beloved. That he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. You see it all over scripture, Old Testament and New. In fact, the Bible begins with a wedding. And then the Bible ends. At the end of time, there's going to be a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And then all the way in between, what do you have? You have the picture of God taking the initiative and pursuing his bride. He's coming after us and trying to woo us and draw us to himself. Now, you can see this all over Scripture. You can see it at Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, certainly Ephesians 5. It is all over the place. There is, there is a very graphic book in the Bible called the Song of Solomon, which, which is all about the beauty of physical love between a husband and a wife. And so the Jewish rabbis would interpret that, not merely just but about the love between a husband and a wife, but really about God's love for his people, Israel. That's how they interpreted the Song of Solomon. Then you go to Hosea, which is a small book, one of the prophets in the Bible. And uh, Hosea describes the relationship between God and his people uh, as, as a relationship between God and an unfaithful wife. So that's really interesting. So the way Hosea describes it is, we're his wife, but we've not been faithful to him. That we've, that we have, that we've, we've really cheated on him. And so what you see as you read through the Old Testament, you see these tragedies that happen to the people of God. So they're sent off into exile in Babylon. The, the temple is destroyed and, you know, the, you know they're, they're occupied by foreign empires. You see this over and over again. And all of that had to do, church, with the fact that Israel wasn't walking with God. They were rejecting God as their husband. And so God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them, and then he warned them and warned them some more, and they just would not heed the warning. And finally what God did is allow judgment to come on them to bring them back into their right mind and their right heart. And so fasting was a way of just recognizing this 
and getting back into their right mind and their right heart. So that was the first reason why the Jewish people uh, fasted. The second reason is they fasted out of anticipation. Because they understand in the middle of the Old Testament, God is promising to send a Messiah, to send a Savior, to send a Redeemer to us. And when this Messiah comes, he's going to, it's going to be an amazing day. It's going to be a day of celebration. It's going to be a day of feasting. It, it, is, a, it is going to inaugurate a brand new day. And man, were the Jewish people looking forward to that. And so what they would do is they would fast in preparation for that day. Now, you know, my son Ryan just graduated from Center Grove High School, so we told him we would take him to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse uh, to celebrate uh, on the evening of graduation. And so, so um, you know, we were really looking forward to that, and um, I knew that's where we were going for dinner. So you know what I did is I really didn't eat that much throughout the day. You guys tracking what I'm saying here? Because, you know, when you show up at Ruth's Chris, you need to show up hungry and ready to eat. Can I get an amen to that? And so that's what you wanted to do. I was preparing for the great feast. That's what I was doing. And that's exactly what the people of Israel did. They understood that food tastes better uh, when you are hungry. And, and, uh, and so these were the reasons why the people of God fasted out of contrition for their sin and then out of anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's pulling both of those together and he's saying to them, you're asking me why my disciples are not fasting. Let me tell you why. I'm the bridegroom and I have come for my bride. It is a brand new day, a brand new day. And so all that you've been longing for, all that you've been praying for, all that you've been hoping for has now arrived. I am here. I am here in the flesh to get, to get my wife. And so now another fascinating thing, when Jesus is teaching, he often refers to himself as the bridegroom. Now, this is really amazing. So you see this metaphor picked up by Jesus himself in his own teaching. I mean, he uses this marriage metaphor. You see it in Matthew 22. He tells the story of a king who's throwing a wedding for his son. This is the parable that he's telling. And he's saying they've got a huge, long guest list, but none of the guests are coming to the wedding. And so the king and the son are just kind of distraught. They're like, what in the world is going on here? We've invited you to the wedding, and you're, not, you're rejecting the invitation. Now, you know who he's talking to, right? He's saying the Jewish people have rejected the invitation to this wedding. They've rejected it. And so the king issues an executive order. He sends his servants out in the street and says, you know what? If they're going to reject my invitation, just go out in the streets and invite everybody who will attend. And you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about the Gentiles. He says, let the Gentiles come in and uh, partake of this great celebration. Then you see it in Matthew, in Matthew 25. There's a whole parable there of, of the 10 virgins, the 10 wedding attendants who are there to kind of take care of the bridal party. And, you know, the groom is kind of running late. And so, so half of them just kind of get tired and they just fall asleep and they just kind of, kind of give up on it. And, um, and then they don't recognize the groom. They're not ready for the groom when he comes. And so, so you, you see this. This is just really amazing. Jesus is referring to himself as this groom. And so, and so now, by the way, 
uh, let, me, let me ask you this. Let's do a little Bible trivia this morning, okay, just to see if you're awake. Um, if Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the bride? You all are. We are. The church. We're the bride of Christ. That's exactly right. And uh, do you know the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is not your happiness. That's not the purpose of marriage. And some of you are like, well, I'm fulfilling the purpose. That is for sure. Um, that's not the purpose of your marriage. The purpose of your marriage is for you to love your spouse so deeply and so genuinely that other people see your love for, for your spouse and they immediately think of God's love. We are to image Marriage is just a sign that points to the love of God for his people. It's the best sign. Because when you love somebody so unconditionally, so genuinely, so deeply, man, it gets people's attention. Because that's, that's really not, um, uh, you know, a, a normal kind of love. And so when people see it, they're like, that's the real deal right there. And then when you find, get this, when you find that you're living out that purpose you're growing closer to the, to the lover of your soul, who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, so that's cool. Now, let me, let me share with you one more kind of tidbit on this. Um, I, I've got a wedding today that I'm doing in Bloomington and so excited about that. But you know, weddings in our culture um, only last two to three hours. Have you noticed that? So you go to the ceremony, uh, you see the ceremony, you, uh, you get to greet the, the happy couple, you go to the reception, you get your piece of cake, and then you're on your way out. So that's, that's kind of how we do it in America. But the, a Jewish wedding in Jesus' day, you know how long it lasted? One week. Can you imagine? It was a week of feasting and celebration, dancing, telling stories, worshiping, celebrating, it was, a, it was one week. And so, and so really what Jesus is saying in this is he's saying, let the wedding festivities begin. I'm here and I'm, gonna, I'm coming for my bride. And then, you know, what's really amazing, Revelation 21, you know, really points to the, the wedding supper of the lamb, that human time all of human history is going to end with Jesus consummating his marriage with his bride, you and me. And it's going to be, it's called the marriage supper of the lamb. It's going to be the biggest party that you have ever seen and you do not want to miss it. You want to be his beloved. And so what Jesus is saying here, what he's trying to communicate to these guys that have really hard hearts is that it's a brand new day. And I'm here, and I'm coming for my bride. Now, what we'll see in verse 21 is he says it's a new day, but he also points us to a new way. So it's not just a new day. It's also a new way. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. Look at verse 21. This is where he uses too many parables and he's trying to use these parables, these illustrations to explain an eternal truth. Let me show them to you. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, that's brand new material, on an old garment. If he does, 
the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So he's talking about you're not going to take an old, worn, threadbare garment and try to patch it with some new material. It's just not going to work. It's not going to hold. Tear is going to get even bigger. And then he gives us another one. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, what's the point that Jesus is trying to make? What he's trying to say is this. Out with the old and in with the new. That's what he's saying. He said, I'm not coming here to patch the old way. I'm not coming here to just try to fix it. I've arrived. It's a new day. Let the wedding festivities begin, and I'm bringing new wine into this place, and we're not trying to, trying to pour the, kind of the new into the old and trying to mix the two, and, and hopefully the two become you know, a little bit better. No, what I'm trying to do is, is replace it altogether. You see, fasting was really something that pointed to the Old Testament law. All the rules and regulations, the rabbis took the Ten Commandments and basically turned them into 630 commandments. And so it's all about rules and regulations. And so, and so you know, God gave God's people through Moses the law, and, and the law really served two purposes. Those commands served two purposes, really to show us how to live and relate to one another and to, and to live and to relate to him. But it was also given as a signpost to the coming of the Messiah. And so, and so that's really the purpose of the law. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. I'm not trying to bring an adaptation of the old way. I'm not trying to bring a continuation of the old, old way. I'm not even trying to bring a reformation of the old way. I'm replacing completely the old way. The old way of sacrificing, law-keeping, you know, ceremonial law, judicial law, this, all these hundreds of laws. I'm just out with the old in with the new. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, let me, let me kind of make this more real for us because, you know, we're just kind of talking in generalities, but let me, let me just kind of make it more real. When we talk about the old way, what are we talking about? We're talking about the sacrificial system, obviously, the rules and the regulations. We're talking about the law of Moses and uh, really what's the difference between the law of Moses and the Old Testament in the gospel, in the new. What's really the difference there? Well, let me give you some differences. The old way of the law is all about works. So you read through some of the Old Testament law, you know, law books, you know, Leviticus and Numbers, you know, there's all of these regulations. It was all about your effort, and your performance, and your responsibility. And so the law just kind of landed on you as a person as a worshiper. You know, grace is different. Grace is completely different. Grace comes from God, and it's a gift. And so it's not about works. It's about receiving a gift. The old way is a way of guilt. So when you went through the law and you're trying to keep all of these laws, you had this nagging sense that I'm not living up to the standard. You know, I'm kind of just you know, not doing all that I should be doing. I should be doing more. I should be trying harder. I should be being better. 
you know? And there's this nagging sense of this as you, as you try to follow the laws, you know, that we see in the Old Testament. But really, the gospel, on the other hand, is all about forgiveness. Like the slate is clean. You got a new start, a new heart, a new beginning. Like the guilt has been lifted. You're brand new. Not, not a nagging sense of anything, just peace and joy. The old way of the law is about bondage. Because you read through the Old Testament and you realize, I, I can't do this. I'm pinned down. I, I just, no matter how hard I try, no matter all of my good intentions, I, I, I just can't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm just really chained down. I'm, I'm pinned down. I'll never rise high enough to obey, obey the law. But the gospel is all about freedom. And it points to a Savior that kept the law for us. And that just sets me free. The old way is really man-centered. It's what you have to do. You better get busy because you got a lot to do. The new way is Jesus-centered. It's what he did for us. He did one big thing. And man, it was a doozy. And it brought in a brand new day and a brand new way. Now, let me, let me just kind of pause on this. So you're saying, Scott, the law is bad? I mean, like, what's the purpose of the law? I mean, is it bad? Well, no, it's not. The Bible says the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. It was given to Moses to give to the people for uh, blessing them and for their benefit. So the law is holy and righteous and good. But here's the problem with the law, church, and we, this is what we've got to see. We can't keep it. That's the problem with the law. As soon as we begin to look at it, we see that it's given for our blessing and our benefit. The problem is, is we can't keep the law, that we have all fallen short of it, that we've missed the mark. And so really the purpose of the law is to drive me to a savior, to show me that there's nothing in my ability, nothing in my strength, that I am not good enough, wise enough, you know, great enough to keep all of the commandments of God. I need, I need some help. And so, and so really what the law does is it shows me that I'm a lawbreaker. This is why Paul says in Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So really the purpose of the law is to make me aware of my own sinfulness, to make me, to make me conscious of my sinfulness, to make me realize my own sinfulness. Because every time I go to the Ten Commandments, what do I realize? Yep, I missed that one, I missed that one, I missed that one, and I missed that one. And man, have I been trying hard to keep them. And so the law just reveals to me that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And so, church, if you try to follow a list of do's and don'ts, if you're trying to turn your walk with God into boxes that you check, where you're just going through the motions, that's not going to make you better it's going to show even more your own brokenness. If you reduce your relationship to God, well, I, I, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, and you're doing all of these things in your own strength, that does not draw you closer to God, it drives you farther away from him. Because, because the focus has become what you do in your own power and your own strength. And so the law shows us 
we can't get there. And hopefully it shows us quickly that we can't get there. But for some of us, we, we've got a lot of faith in ourselves. Let me try to illustrate this. If I gave every one of you an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and a pencil, and I gave you something to write on, and I said, I want you to take your pencil, and I want you to draw a two-inch straight line. You would get that paper out, you lay it flat, you get that pencil, and you would get you, you would get so taut in your arm, and you would just you would just try so hard to draw that, and you would be like, man, that's a straight line, that's pretty good. You'd be kind of proud of yourself. But then if I gave you a 12-foot sheet of paper, and I said, I want you to draw a line, a straight line that's 12 feet long, and you'd be like, I can do this, I can do this, you know. And you just get really, you know, taught there and you just try really hard to keep that thing straight. And you get all the way, all the way to, you know, to 12 feet and you look back and you see how crooked it is. Can you imagine doing that with the entire law of God? No. Because you already know you can't. You can't draw a straight line that long. And we can't obey God's laws like He's asked us, to, asked us to. We just can't do it. We, you know, you know the, the reality is, is we're not, we're not little engines that could. We're train wrecks that can't. You see, the, the thing is, and this is, this is where we, we get off, off track. We automatically think, well, I'm doing pretty good. My line is 51% straight. That's good. I'm good enough. I can get in by just being good enough. You know, I could be good in my own power. And God will see my goodness and let me into his heaven because surely he's not going to turn away a good person. Well, there's an assumption that we're making there. We're making an assumption that... Uh, the requirement to get into heaven is 51% goodness. That our goodness outweighs our badness. That if we're just, we have more good things in our life than bad, then we're in and we're good. The problem with that is God doesn't require goodness. He requires perfection. He requires a line perfectly straight, 12 feet 10 times for the 10 commandments and then you push back and say well then who can be saved scott because none of us none of us can do that that's exactly right none of us can there's no man or woman on the earth who can save themselves who are good enough perfect enough to save themselves and so when jesus is saying there is a new day and a new way he's pointing to himself and what he's saying is, you all, along with me, we can't keep the law. We're not even close. We break one commandment. We've broken all of them. That's what the Bible says. But there's one who did. And his name is Jesus, the bridegroom. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 19 about the law. Let me show you this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
So what Jesus is saying here is I'm not going to hit the delete key on the law. The law is holy and perfect and good. Jesus is saying I have come to fulfill it perfectly. I have come to live it out in absolute perfection and goodness. And that's exactly what he did. He obeyed the entire law of God. Every minute that he walked on this planet, he did all of the law that was required. And so uh, through Jesus' perfect obedience and then really through his death on the cross, that gives us access to our heavenly father. That, in, that brings us into the wedding ceremony is what it does. We, we can come to the father riding the coattails of Jesus. And you're like, well, Scott, how in the world do we even do that? Well, we do it by grace through faith. That's how we do it. We recognize we've fallen short. We recognize Jesus didn't. He kept the law perfectly. So by grace through faith in him, his righteousness, get this, his obedience to the law gets transferred to me. And, and by, by grace through faith, God looks at me as if I've never broken the law. Let me show it to you in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. The apostle Paul says that this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And all of this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. This is what the bridegroom has done for his bride. He has made a way for her to enter into the, the marital relationship, this eternal love relationship. And it's a free gift of God's, of God's grace. And so it's a brand new day and it's a brand new way. And so by his grace and through the faith that we receive from him, man, we, we can know forgiveness and joy and liberty and goodness and peace and the whole thing. Now, let me ask you this. Why is it that we struggle to embrace grace? You ever thought about that? I mean, I, I, sometimes I think this is the most difficult message to preach. I mean, of all the things that we see in the Bible, but just coming to that place of receiving the gift, it's, it's really hard. Do you, do you know why it's so hard for us to embrace grace? I think it's found in our human nature. I, I think that there's something in us that wants to be in control. There's something in us that wants to take credit for what we do. There's an independent streak in us. And we just kind of want to stiff arm God and say, God, nope. I don't need you to do this. I can do it. I can take care of myself. And what's fascinating is you see that all the way through the Bible too. So in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, do you know what the very next thing that they did? Right after they sinned and they knew that they sinned, they broke the commandment of God. You know what they did? They got busy working. They got busy earning their way. They got busy making clothes to cover their own nakedness because their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked. They had guilt and shame. And so what they were trying to do is cover themselves. And they think, they think to themselves, if we work hard enough and we sew these you know, fig leaves together and we cover ourselves, then we'll be right. See, they're trying to earn their way. And even God 
you know, says, no, that, that's not the way. And, and then you go to Genesis chapter 4, and there's two brothers, Cain and Abel. And, and both of them are, are going to be worshiping God. And it's fascinating. They both bring offerings to God. They bring something physical to demonstrate where their hearts are, okay? So Abel brings the very best of his livestock. And so he offers that to God. And then Cain brings the very best of his crops. And so God received Abel, the, 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 the livestock offering, from, from Abel, but he rejected Cain's. Now, why was that? Well, I, I think it's because of this. I think that, that that livestock that Abel offered was a recognition, God, this is what you've provided, so in faith, I'm just going to give it back to you. But Cain's was different. Cain gave a portion of his crops. These were crops that he raised, that he worked for. He cultivated. He tended them. And so this was more of an expression, God, look what I've done. Look what I'm doing for me. And his sacrifice was rejected. Carry that all the way to Jesus' day. You have these Pharisees, these scribes, these teachers of the law, and what are they doing? They're doing a whole lot of fasting. They're doing a whole lot of praying in front of people so that they can be seen. They're doing a whole lot of social distancing from tax collectors and sinners. They don't want to be tainted. You know, they're doing a whole lot of these, these different things. And you know why they're doing it? They're trying to do it to earn their own way. They're trying to say, I'm strong enough to be good enough to be what you want me to be. And that's why there's so much conflict between Jesus and and the Pharisees, and next week they're going to they're gonna start plotting to kill him. And uh, that's where the conflict uh, goes. Now, let me just end with this. Let me ask, how does this apply to us today? Well, I think it's a really good question. And let me, let me just give you one application. I think, it's, I think it's very easy for us in our walk with God to drift in a, into a religion-centered relationship with God rather than a gospel-centered relationship with God. What I mean by religion-centered is we try to reduce our relationship with God to just things that we're doing, going to church, we give, we might serve. And outwardly, we look really good, but we're just really going through the motions. Our hearts are just far from God. And, and we're just trusting in all of these outward things that we do. We, we're, we're just trusting in looking good and playing the part and pasting a smile on our face. But our hearts are far from him. Matt Carter talks about really the difference between a religious-centered Christian and a gospel-centered Christian. Let me just share some of these with you. He says, he says a religious-centered Christian regularly experiences guilt over sin. And the reason why is because when you sin, you feel like you let God down. But a gospel-centered Christian regularly experiences not guilt over sin, but sorrow for sin. It's a big difference. They're sorry that they sinned. 
But that sorrow is quickly replaced by just a profound sense of gratitude because you know as a gospel-centered Christian that that sin doesn't impact or change your standing with God. So, So really that sorrow turns to gratitude because you know that that sin has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. So let me ask you, are you experiencing more guilt or more gratitude? A religious-centered Christian kind of runs from God when they sin because they think, okay, God's mad at me. He's going to punish me. He's going to get me somehow. And they just try to run from God. That's what Adam and Eve did. They ran from God. But a gospel-centered Christian doesn't run from God. They run to God because they don't want to compromise their closeness with God. So they want to get that relationship right. They don't want to compromise it, right? They don't want to lose that closeness with God. So they run to him. A religious-centered Christian feels like, you know, for them, Christianity is just a burden, just another thing I got to do. I'm just getting exhausted. I'm tired. I got to follow these rules and regulation. I've got to strive. But you know what? A gospel-centered Christian doesn't see Jesus as a burden. They see it as the burden's been lifted. And they know they have to fight sin. The fight, the fight for sin will remain until they die. But, but they just experience the freedom knowing that, Jesus is really giving them the strength that they need. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and who are, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, a gospel-centered Christian experiences that rest. Religious-centered Christian struggles to forgive others. And so they, they struggle to forgive quickly. They struggle to forgive completely when somebody, you know, a, a spouse or um, you know, a parent or a friend or coworkers kind of hurt them. They just struggle to forgive completely, quickly. But a gospel-centered person forgives completely and quickly, not necessarily easily, but more quickly and more completely. Why? Because they recognize how much God has forgiven them. And then lastly, a, re- a religious-centered person's worship is just lifeless you know it's just duty it's what I got to do I'm at church sing but a gospel-centered Christian their, their hearts is filled with joy because they know that they have they've done nothing to deserve what God has blessed them with what God has given them I think that's what Jesus is saying it's a new day in a new way It's not what you have to do. It's what Jesus, the lover of your soul, has done for you. And so, church, I just want to challenge you. Don't don't let your relationship slide into what you have to do. Don't let it slide into lifeless, dead religion. But let let it move intentionally in the faith, hope, love and the presence of God joy peace and patience let's pray together heavenly father I thank you that you sent Jesus so that it would no longer be about worshiping in the right building or the right place at the right time but you sent Jesus to raise up worshipers who will always worship in spirit and in truth. And God, I just ask that you would just cleanse us 
just the sin of trying to get there on our own and trying to rely on our own strength and our own power. We just confess we can't do it. God, we need, we need you. We can't save ourselves. And we can't obey you in our own strength. But God, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit and just the incredible news of grace and the gospel that you'll do it for us, you'll do it through us if we would just ask. So God, we just come asking. And I want to just give you a moment to pray just to yourself and however you need to talk to God, he's, I believe he's talking to you. And so if you need to confess, confess. If you need to repent, repent. But just take this moment to talk to your heavenly father who made a, made a way through the son. And the Holy Spirit's here to just bring it all together. Heavenly Father, will you fill us with joy? Would you open our eyes that we would see the new day and the new way? God, thank you. Jesus is the way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.